from all you poor workers, good news to you, I'll tell how the good old union has come in here to dwell. A battle in the heart of Alabama caught our attention. Coal miners in one community, they've been on strike now for months. Working as long as 12 hours a day, seven days a week, in some of the most dangerous conditions. I really think that the labor movement is the single greatest force for democracy in the history of the United States. The story of Alabama is a story of not just resilience, but of militancy. I say no contract, you say no code. No contract, no If we ain't all free, ain't none of us free. You're listening to Alabama's only union talk radio show, The Valley Labor Report, with Adam Keller and Jacob Morrison. Hello, Tennessee Valley. This is The Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison, here with my co-host and fellow agitator Adam Keller, and we are broadcasting live-ish Online and on the radio uh, from the heart of the Tennessee Valley, the Spice Radio Studio in Huntsville, Alabama. The machinists in Decatur are gearing up for negotiations. A member of the bargaining committee walks us through their preparations and responds to some anti-union propaganda about union negotiations. We talk about some recent Alabama stats. We speak to a pro-labor Republican. And more on today's program. Uh, if you want to be a part of the program, we've got a phone number. You can call 844-899-TVLR. That is 844-899-8857. You won't be able to join us live today because this is a pre-taped show. We pre-taped this on Tuesday afternoon uh, because we're going to be out of pocket on Saturday. But you can leave us a voicemail anytime and we'll answer it. If you haven't gotten enough of us by the time that we wrap here on the radio, or if you just want to see what we're up to throughout the week, then you can find us online anywhere you find anything. We are on Twitter, we are on Facebook, we are on YouTube, wherever you listen to your podcasts, all at The Valley Labor Report. Just a reminder, your support keeps us on the air. Our single largest source of funding comes directly from our listeners. So if you want to become a sustaining member of the program, make a one-time donation, or buy our new hat, let's throw that up there for him, Adam, if you could, you can go to tvlr.fm. Navigate over to our store, get you one of those good hats, become a sustaining member of the program, make a monthly donation, all that good stuff. You can do all of that at our website, tvlr.fm. TVLR.FM. If you're a member of a union, you should get your local to sponsor the show. You can reach out to me for more details on that. Uh, so let's go ahead and jump right into it. Uh, Terrence Ireland is running for House District 2 for Alabama House District 2. He is a Carpenters Union member. He's a, fire fired, fi- uh, he's a firefighter, and he recently received the endorsement of the North Alabama Area Labor Council, a regional body of the AFL-CIO representing thousands of working people in the area, and, he's re- and he is a Republican. So that's kind of interesting. We wanted to talk to him about, about his campaign as a pro-labor Republican in 2022. So he is our next guest. Uh, Brother Terrence, thank you very much for your time today. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for having me. Absolutely. So let's start with you personally. You know, you're a union member. It's something that's important to you and important enough to you as a Republican to put on some of your publicity materials, despite the fact that, you know, being a union member... 
uh, for a lot of people, especially in the donor class, uh, in the Republican and the Democratic parties, for that matter, uh, being a Repub- uh, being a union member will do more harm than good among a lot of those types of folks. So why is your union membership something that you're so open with? Well, I think it's, you know, we need to be transparent on what we stand for, uh, regardless of what kind of party you're running in. Um, and I know that kind of a, when you look at, when you kind of look at unions, a lot of people kind of look at um, more the Democratic Party is more union friendly. Um, but as myself, as a, as a Republican, you know, I'm union friendly and I'm also a union. Um, so we see the eye on the same issues. Right, right. So the uh, you know when we were talking earlier, you even mentioned to me that uh, um, that you were part of a unionization campaign among some contract firefighters on a military base. Can you talk to us about that? Yeah, yeah. So we uh, it was a military base out in the Pacific. Uh, we had tried to unionize the department. Uh, unfortunately, uh, one of the other other islands uh, out there, they was part of the U.S. territory. Uh, we have a military base, and the one I was uh station that we we wasn't part of the uh, a u.s territory so when we tried to got the ball rolling everybody was all for it um we all kind of met up in the, uh, the, the attorneys kind of met in honolulu and it got got shot down really quick because uh even though everybody was for it it was it came up to say you know kind of outside your jurisdiction here you know you're this this island this military base is on foreign soil soil so you have no right to bargaining and, and credit union here <laughs> isn't that crazy that's <laughs> yes that's pretty wild because you're uh somewhere else you gotta give up some of your rights that's pretty wild yeah um our, our, our protected rights you know even though you know i think that you know i think that you know we should look at you know in the future look at a lot of these military installations you know they're just because it's overseas um i think we should look at some the way those the people who works on those bases, uh, def- defense contractors, Americans that's working there. Uh, why wouldn't they be allowed to be under the same laws that back at home when they're working for the U.S. government? <laughs> Absolutely, it do- it doesn't make any sense. You know, if you're uh, mm-hmm. especially that's one of the things that I am I- I'm very passionate about, um, which is whenever we're spending taxpayer dollars. Um, we should be, you know, we should be tying strings to that. We should be saying, you know, like, look, uh, we have certain priorities as a government, and one of those priorities is that uh, the people that work in this country have good wages, they have good benefits, they have good working conditions, and so when we contract out work, we should not allow the privatization of our uh, of government services to come at the cost of the people who do the work you know i mean that's and and that's often uh you know that's often part of the reason <laughs> that people want to privatize yeah. is because they've got some buddies that you know they want to cut wages and and put the difference in their pockets so absolutely so um what uh, you know, you're a Carpenters Union member. Can you talk about some of like how that has benefited you as as a member of the union? Um, you know, some of the things that that some of the work that you do and and the benefits that you get as a union member. So yeah, um, so I, I entered the carpenter trade uh, back in 2019. Um, I didn't have a lot of experience. I've I've been in fire protection, civil civil fire protection 
for over 19 years. And most of my background is working uh, through my local community. 19 years, I worked as a volunteer firefighter and I served as a local board director over the county fire association as the fire prevention officer. And then over seven plus years, I traveled around the world working on defense contracts through Iraq, Afghanistan, um, the Pacific area. Um, so when I, you know, when I just, when I decided to give up the defense work and come back home, um, I was kind of looking for something to do. And, um, as a kid growing up, you know, my stepfather, he was a, a carpenter. He had his little carpenter business and he kind of like a handyman. So I, you know, I had a little bit of general knowledge. I wasn't an expert by all means, but, you know, I gave it a shot. A couple of my buddies at the fire department, you know, they're like, Hey, won't you join the union? You know, we're, we're doing carpentry work. You can make a good salary at it. You support your family. There's good benefits. There's, you know, there's, you get your pension, retirement, all that's available to you. I was like, I don't know. You know, it's just, I don't know if I got the spins. It's like, I'm going to have to start back over again. And uh, he's like, no, no, man, it's a apprentice program. You go through it, you're, you're working and you're learning and you're getting paid for it. I mean, mm-hmm. so it's not like, you know, you're going to be in a college trying to get a four year degree and you're not going to get anything while you're trying to go learn something. Um, they're going to, they're going to get you the hands on experience and you're going to get paid for it as you work. And that, and that really, you know, kind of pushed me towards the union. And ever since I got in, I've, I've always really enjoyed it. Um, it's just, you know, the, the brothers you work with, they're all passionate about what they do and about each other. And we all get together. If somebody's, you know, sick or, um, having a hard time, we all gather together and support that brother. Yeah, that I mean that is a underappreciated fact of uh, union membership. I think you know it's easy for us to talk about um, the better wages, the better benefits, better working conditions, you know, all that stuff because it's it's true. Uh, but there is a real sort of uh, community there, at least in a at least in a good union. There's a real sort of community there that you just uh, you're just not going to get in a non-union workplace most of the time. Uh, you know, uh, bosses will want to talk about how how <laughs> how their family, but you know, really the folks that you work with, your brothers and sisters on the job, uh, they're your family. And when you you know when you're part of a union, it really helps to drive that home and and you've got that sort of uh that sort of community there uh even beyond just the material things like wages and benefits and and you know basically every time that we've talked uh you've mentioned that uh uh you know that your support for those folks down in Bessemer who are organizing in Amazon, you know, feeling like, uh, you know, they deserve some of the things that some of the, the same things that y'all do that UPS drivers make because of their union membership, because of their organizing. Um, and, you know, that's something that you don't hear a lot from Republicans. I mean, uh, I talked to you earlier today about how Tuberville, he has spent time actively trying to discourage these workers down in Bessemer from uh, from unionizing, you know, saying that we need to be a business friendly state. Uh, how do you how do you see that as as a Republican, you know, ha- but somebody who believes that workers should union believe that workers deserve to be in a union, deserve the benefits that come along with that? How do you see that as a Republican, knowing that so many of your, you know, People in the same party as you disagree on that. Well, <clears throat> no, I agree. You know, we do want to be a business friendly state, and but we also have to make sure that employees and the people working these 
these businesses were trying to draw in, they have a good paying wage and they're able to support their family. And you can work a you can work at a normal business and work a forty hour job and and you know, by the time you get your paycheck and you're like you look at it and you're like and after you've already deducted your family insurance, which is, you know, up there around six, seven hundred dollars for like family encourage for insurance, you you go home with nothing and you're still on you're still on you know, SNAP benefits after working a forty hour job after you've you know, paid your your medical insurance. How can you survive on something like that? And that's not really a that's not very friendly, employee friendly. I mean, if you're if a if a if a man a hardworking man cannot support his family working a forty hour job, and you still have to rely on the government assistance. So we, I think, there's a lot of times you look at the businesses and they're for profit more than taking care of employees. And then there's a lot of people. Who, we blow a smoke of, oh, we're, you know, family-oriented company, and we love our employees. But when it comes down to the core values of what they sport, um, you'll find that their directive is definitely not for the employees. Um, I was involved in uh, some management of a of a, a local big box store one time, you know, and I felt I felt that uh that the big box store, you know, they look at them and. They always make these kind of like Amazon. They have a point system. You miss so many days or, you know, you're out of there. I mean, it becomes a problem because you're, they want to say that you're, we're loving and supporting of our employees and we're family owned, but every, every employee is going to have ups and downs of life. And so one of the big got me is how one of my employees was uh, having to go through a hardship. He just had a, uh, a, a daughter. And then she was in a needle natal care and he was missing a lot of days. And it's understandable. I mean, who who wouldn't want to be there holding your child's hand and going through that hard time? I mean, it's an infant. And it, it got to the point where, you know, the upper man's like, yeah, he's already missed too many days. Let's get rid of him. You know, I'm like, wait a minute. This guy is only, he he's the only in, the only funds in his family right now is coming from him. Regardless, he's not, he's missing a lot of days. He is making some and we're adjusting his schedule. You're just going to kind of kick him down in the dirt some more. I mean, I thought we were, I thought we we're for the people and the employees here. Um, and it, their mentality, you know, is you can blow a lot of smoke and say, I'm, I'm for your employees and we're family oriented, but, um, a lot of these, it comes down to big profits, you know? Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, you know, it's and it's so frustrating because it's so easy to just have somebody else pick up that shift or hire somebody else. You know, if somebody needs to go down to part time to bring somebody else in, uh, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, it's just it's so easy to accommodate people's schedules. Um, and, you know, like you said, there are a lot of people, uh, a lot of a lot of businesses that that won't even do that much for their employees, much less, you know, um, absolutely. Give them, give them a good wage. So, you know, let, let's talk about, let's talk about your campaign for a little bit then. Why did you, uh, why did you decide to run for state house? So, um, I decided to run, I've, I've served my community for 19 years, um, in the volunteer service, um, fire protection, serve on our, our local fire board, and also done it for paid service for on federal contracting. So I've served my community for, for many years and I, it's about nothing about the money. I mean, a, a legislator in Alabama doesn't make a lot of money. Um, you could easily, I can easily make the same amount of money more working construction. 
But I feel like we need to address some of the issues that's facing our state. And my service can be better by, you know, the legislators trying to address those issues. And um, I feel like I can build a confidence of the people um, that I serve. I've, I've served, the, served this uh, community in this state for over 19 years. And that kind of pushed me in this direction to continue to serve the people. Yeah, well, so what are some of the things that you'd like to uh, you'd like to push if you're elected down in Montgomery? What are some of the things that you'd like to uh, uh, to try to get done to support working people in this state? So, some of the some of the voices I've heard in, in the state. Um, I talked to one of our university professors. Um, we can look at some of the ways that how we treat uh, paternity leave in the state. We, we need something. Say you're a new employee. Um, you come in, you're you, you're not eligible for the FMLA because you don't have a year of service. Um, so what happens? I'm usually going back to my big box store that I worked at. You know, you're tough luck. You know, if you ain't been here a year, you're pregnant, you're gone. Um, you're not going to take off. You know, three, four, five weeks to have your kid. Um, we need to we need to look at how we can change that. Um, make something in the state legislation, make a little bit of protection for these, for females that's going through a pregnancy. Get a little bit, if, even though they're not protected by the federal at state level, we can adopt something. Give them a little bit more protection. I, you see a lot of countries in all over the world that has like maternity leave for, for women, but we don't have anything in this country unless you're about a year of service. Um, Another thing and even is, after uh, a year of service, that's only protected unpaid leave. <laughs> you know, I mean, yes. I, I worked in a restaurant for three years, and I I worked with a woman who um who had worked at that restaurant since it opened. Um, it opened mm-hmm. in 2015, and this this happened in 2018, and she was pregnant in 2018, and she um she worked until literally the day before she gave birth. I mean. I'm talking she went into the hospital after her after she clocked out to go give birth. And then she was back at work two days later because, you know, she's she's working at a restaurant. Right. She's a she's a server. She doesn't have money. She can't she couldn't do, uh, you know, even if she could have taken unpaid leave, she couldn't afford to take unpaid leave. She was a single mother. So she had to come right back to work two days after giving birth. I mean, it's it's insane. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I was going to jump in here, Terrence, because I just want to say I really appreciate you bringing that issue up. And, and Jacob, the story you shared is, you know, unfortunately, that's all too common. And uh, mm-hmm. I think a lot of folks may not realize that, you know, of course, I'm, I'm going to bring back my public school experience. Public educators are overwhelmingly women. Hmm. Uh, we know that teachers are by and large, you know, it's a female workforce. And even though teachers do earn paid sick leave, there is no maternity leave for teachers in the state of Alabama. So you're talking about a workforce that is predominantly female. You know, the majority of your teachers are going to be pregnant at some point, uh, but there's no paid maternity leave there. And like you mentioned, Terrence, you, you've got restrictions on F, to even qualify for FMLA. And that's, you know, you hope that you have built up enough sick days. But, you know, there are so many teachers out there who uh, go into debt to the sick leave bank or who end up leaving the profession, you know, either temporarily or permanently. So, you know, and talk 
you know, we hear a lot of discussion from Montgomery about uh, rec- recruiting and retaining teachers. This is, you know, this is a key issue there, uh, and and it goes beyond that into the private sector, like you mentioned, Jacob, because. When you have these paid leave policies and, and maternity leave policies, these folks can come back. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's one less person you're going to have to uh, train and, and get on board with your, your company. So it just makes a lot of sense from an economic standpoint beyond the fact that it's really the right thing to do for people and, mm-hmm. and in a state that talks about family values. I mean, I, you know, you, you, you talked about that. Uh, you know that that you reckon you know some uh, uh, a fella ought to be able to support his family and and you know if his wife doesn't uh, doesn't want to work she would rather stay home and and raise her kids I think that's admirable right. and I think I think that more folks ought to have that as an option and it's just so sad that today we don't have that um w- w- you know you were talking about maternity leave and and things like that I I believe in New York they've recently passed a law that there's some combination of like a a requirement on employers to put some money into this fund and then some amount of tax dollars that go towards a paid maternity and paternity leave that that's like i don't know 60-70% of what you make is that is that the kind of thing that you're talking about or are you just talking about job protections like extending FMLA protections uh beyond yes. you know I think, uh, we, I think we need to extend the FMLA protections um I kind of look at the also uh, our workers on compensation. Um, how many workers you have that will work an entire lifetime will never draw an unemployment because they've been employed an entire life. Um, they've paid it. You know, there's been benefits paid into them um, in case that ever happens. So w- why couldn't we as a state um, have a a bill passed that we can actually for a, for a young mother or a mother is going through a pregnancy or going is that to giving birth, give them a little bit of protection. Um, could could we pay for them to be off for a year? I don't know. We could start that high, but it's better than nothing. They have nothing now. They're going to be home mm-hmm. unpaid. At least give them something. You know, eight twelve weeks of a little compensation. To, and we could. I think we could pass it through your through the unemployment compensation. It'd be uh, something to be protected. Um, you know, it, maybe it's not the they wouldn't get the full compensation of working a, what they would make at workplace, mm-hmm. their full salary, but at least they would have something um, to help them while they're off off work. Yeah, I, I think that's important. And like you said, you know, it's uh, it, it's they've got nothing now. So you know, looking at e- even. I mean, even 30, 40% of their salary would be better than where we're at now. And, you know, that could help somebody be able to, to stay, you know, 30, 40, 50% of their salary, uh, stay at home during that critical time, you know, looking at eight to 12 weeks, uh, after, after the birth of their child. I think that's, that's, you know, a critical time in development. And, and, you know, it, it'd be helpful for the child and the mother, I think. What about, um, you know, you're obviously a supporter of unions and and, you know, we know that that unions are a good way for workers to bring up their wages and working conditions themselves. Um, you mentioned that, uh, uh, you know, you were interested in in the PRO Act on, on a national level. What kind of things do you think on a state level could be done to um make it more easier for workers to organize, to make it more difficult for bosses to interfere in that process? 
some of the, some of the things I think we need to look at is when we do capital projects is funded by taxpayer money, um, where it be a coliseum or you know a bridge or infrastructure upgrades, whatever you're using taxpayer money and you're you know that where you're getting that taxpayer money from, whether it be a, a ad valium tax or um, a tobacco tax, you know the people those taxes are paid for the local people. Um, why shouldn't they? Why shouldn't they be allowed to build that project? Use a local workforce. Um, allow how allow them the opportunity to to bargain with their collective wages. You know, um, because they're the one that's building that. I mean, their money and what their it's their tax, their money is building that project. Um, I think we need to look at that. Anything over you know a certain percentage, um, we're gonna have to look at a dollar figure here. It needs to be competitive bid out, but also needs. Um, that you labor agreement in there where they can bargain on their agreement on the terms. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there is a there's a bill that has been um, that's been introduced this year and last year, a quote unquote anti riot bill that would allow um, the police to arrest people for quote unquote rioting, even if they haven't uh, damaged any property or hurt anybody, uh, held for 24 hours before conviction, held in prison, uh, held in jail for 30 days if they're convicted of rioting. Um, it would, uh, you know, the, lots, that's one of the most damaging things. And, but th- that just passed the state house a couple of weeks ago. Where, uh, where would you stand on a bill like that? So I was reading the bill, and I think there's a lot of loopholes in there. Um, I think, you know, as general, when it was passed, um, it may have met good, but you didn't – there's too many loopholes, and there, need, there needs to be fixed before that because a lot of innocent people are going to be affected by that. Um, just by looking at the bill, it's kind of it's it's like a double-edged sword. Um, you need to protect one side so nobody – both sides doesn't get cut. You know, if you – we understand the aspect of – trying to protect the property um, in a city from violent protests. And when I say violent, we, we need to look at who's involved in the protest that's making the violent. Uh, we can't just generally say the entire crowd is a violent protester. Any mm-hmm. any Fruit Loop would just join, walk into the crowd and say, I'm part of the protest. But your actions of that person doesn't affect the rest of the protesters. So right. the bill needs to – I think it, it's premature the bill is being proposed – there needs to be we worked a little bit more, some some fine language needs to be put in there. So we make sure we're not infringing on the, the protesters' rights. That's not they're innocent. Yeah, I I, w- I would I would agree that that I don't support it, but I would I would say that I would actually be interested in going in the opposite direction. I think that you know as we are moving towards instituting constitutional carry in Alabama, making it easier to um, to concealed carry without a permit. Uh, you know, I don't think that I'm necessarily opposed with that. I think that we should also move towards uh, making it easier to speak in Alabama. You know, so we're going to be, if constitutional carry passes the state Senate, we're going to be in a place where we can carry a gun without a permit. But if I want to speak downtown, I still have to get, have a permit. I mean, I think that's totally backwards. <laughs> I think we should move towards, yes, yes, um, exactly you know, right. 
yeah, I, I think that we should be moving towards a, uh, you know, maybe a constitutional speech bill where we say that, you know, it's easier for it's make it easier for people to speak. You know, I I, uh, I know that this is way down in another uh, on basically the other side of the state. But our brothers and sisters in Brookwood have been on strike for almost a year now, and they have had basically the entire time an injunction set on them where they can only have so many people on the picket line. At first it was 10, then it was 6, then it was 5, then they banned it completely for months. Now they can only have two people on a picket line. I mean, that's just insane. And that's the government saying, you know, this is the state government coming in and restricting the rights of our citizens to uh, to speak and assemble. And, you know, that uh, I, I think that we should be moving in totally the opposite direction from this anti-riot bill. Um, so, you know, you, you, you're obviously, you know, you're pro-union, you're pro, pro-worker, you're interested in, in, you know, making the wages and working conditions better for workers in Alabama. But, you know, we, we just talked about this anti-riot legislation. Republicans in Montgomery, it seems to me, seem dead set on putting these sort pushing these sort of divisive culture war issues like, you know, saying Black Lives Matter protesters are bad and, we, and you know, they're scary and, and, and all this stuff, talking about abortion, CRT, criminalizing protest. How are you going to push your caucus, the Republican caucus, if you get elected, to focus on these bread and butter issues about wages and working conditions and how our tax money is allocated and address them in favor of working people Instead of trying to divide us on these other issues or even making things worse for working people on these uh, economic issues, how are you going to get how 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 will you push your caucus to, you know, to help working folks in Alabama? So um, all those things are very important issues, and this has been addressed on the state level and the national level. And. And when, and as a legislator, and I think the general public and the society review, um, you have to take time to look at both point of views on that. Um, if you if you start look, pushing one point, um, you're you're going to make someone else mad on the other point. You know, on the on the issues like that, um, we need to focus on moving forward about protecting workers. And is is the, is these actions here are they are they how are they infringing on the, in the workers itself? Um, I want to, I like to address, you know, the, the issues that comes up the most. Uh, there's a lot of CRT theories out there. Um, and I believe, you know, that in a general perspective, um, they should be able to express their views. Um, just like any other free speech. But, um, at one point, at some point, um, where, where does it go where it can't be tolerated anymore? Um, we need to, we need to look at those and say, Hey, you know, these people need to be able to express their views just like we can express our views against those. And we need to be neutral in those in those conversations. All right. How, uh, but but the the what I meant to ask, sorry if I, I didn't. How, how are you going to, you know, because it, it seems to me that there is such a focus on those issues at the detriment, at the at the exclusion of these other bread and butter issues, how, uh, of of you know wages and working conditions, and and helping uh, you know helping make sure that you know workers have the freedom to organize. How are you going to you know keep people on track, basically, because there is such a there is such an interest in these in these you know 
issues that don't have a material effect on people's lives i think how do you think that uh, you know do you, do you have any um you know uh, and, and it is a long way away but do you have it any ideas about how you would keep your caucus uh, keep the people that you're elected with on track on the important issues that are going to actually affect working people yeah so the, one of my, my biggest things i want to push is kind of upgrading a infrastructure in the state and we want to make sure that those are priority um there's a lot of issues in the state like the crt the religion um but what what at the at the end of the day, what matters the most is the people that's going to be building this infrastructure, protecting their rights. That's the ones we need to protect. And also, that's that's what – when they're building these structures, their income, that's – at the end of the day, they get a paycheck and they'll be able to support their family. Regardless of if there's a protest over here, um, they can still – they're still protected at the end of the day. All right. Uh Terrence, I appreciate your time. Thank you very much for talking to us. All right, thank you. All right. That was Terrence Ireland. He is running for State House District 2 in the Muscle Shoals, Limestone County area. It kind of, uh, his district overlaps those there. Um, so we've been talking to him about his campaign, uh, and we're going to go ahead and take a break really quick. And up next, we're going to be talking to Chris Mullins, a bargaining committee member of the Machinist Local 44 in Decatur, about preparing for contract negotiations. You're listening to the Valley Labor Report. Stay tuned. Support for this program also comes from the Ironworkers, Local 477. So if you are looking for contractors with lower than average EMR and TRIR, uh, they tell me that if you need to know what those mean, then you will. Uh, Or if you need to supplement a workforce at any level for any amount of time, short or long term, if you need ironworkers that come trained and certified at no extra cost, or if you need workers from superintendent down to general laborer, and you're looking to start work on a project or you're unhappy with your current contractor situation, you need to call my friend Jeb Miles with the Ironworkers Local 477. They only work with the best in the business, vetted contractors, and can do all kinds of jobs from roofing to steel and bridge erection, from welding to heavy rigging, from structural repairs to machinery alignment, and much more. They supply manpower on four of the five largest projects in North Alabama, so you know they're legit. If you need good quality, safe, efficient, diligent, and knowledgeable workers on your job, then you need the Ironworkers Local 477. Call Jeb Miles at 256-383-3334 or via email at local477 at bellsouth.net and make sure you tell them that you heard about them on the Valley Labor Report. IBW558 is like a great football team. You've got to have the aptitude, skills, and knowledge to outperform the competition. If you're a non-union electrician, now is the perfect time to get off the sideline and join our team. We have the absolute best wages and benefit package in North Alabama and Southern Tennessee. It's because our team stands together, bargains together, and our families benefit from it. With immediate openings, you have the opportunity to see why the IBW is the right choice. Energy Alabama is a locally operated and membership-based nonprofit organization focused on advancing Alabama's clean energy future through education and advocacy. 
Many people in charge of infrastructure and building decisions simply don't know how viable clean and renewable energy is. And to that end, Energy Alabama has provided instruction to thousands of adults and tens of thousands of K-12 students across the state. And they are working hard to build careers in clean energy and help everyday Alabamians save money on their utility bills. Learn more about their work and how you can join at energyalabama.org. Support for the Valley Labor Report comes from the International Federation of Professional and Technical Engineers Union. Learn more by visiting www.ifpte.org. The attorneys of Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs are proud to represent working people in Alabama and across the Southeast. They have over 100 years of experience representing injured workers in workers' compensation, personal injury, and disability claims. Let their attorneys help you when you get injured on the job. You can find them at www.mtandj.com or 855-617-9333. Let Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs help you when you get injured on the job. Again, the website is www.mtandj.com or the phone number 855-617-9333. No representation is made that the quality of legal services is greater than the quality of legal services from other law firms. Support for this program comes from the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 136, out of Central Alabama. Learn more at IBEW136.org. creates all wealth. All wealth should go to labor. You are listening to the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison and my co-host is Adam Keller. If you have anything to add to the program, you can give us a call. The phone number is 844-899-TVLR. That is 844-899-8857. This is a pre-tape. You won't be able to join us live, but you can leave us a voicemail and we'll answer it on the next program. We've been talking to Terrence Ireland. He is running for House District Two, uh, State House District Two in Alabama, about his campaign, about his union membership, and uh, what he wants to do for working people in the state. Up next, we are talking to Chris Mullins, Machinist Local Forty Four member and part of their negotiating committee about their preparations for contract negotiation. Chris, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Thank you. So. Um, the uh, the United Launch Alliance is a rocket manufacturer in North Alabama, in Decatur, and they've got a stellar success rate. None of their rockets have launched unsuccessfully, and that is thanks to the efforts of the workers who are organized into the International Association of Machinists and Aerospace Workers Local Lodge 44. We've been talking to them a lot over the last few months about ULA's vaccine mandate, their success in retaining membership, and uh, they're coming up on uh, contract negotiations. So I thought it'd be good to talk uh, to one of the folks on their bargaining committee about that. So, Chris, let's start with this. Can you tell us how you were selected to be on the committee? I was nominated by my brothers and sisters and uh, an election was held and I was part of the group of five to win. And that's how I was selected. 
So uh, a big bad union boss from across the country didn't come in and uh, and and tell you who's going to be on the committee. <laughs> Absolutely not. Our brothers and sisters select our committee. And and so you are you're you're a worker. You're you're not somebody that is a staff with a union. You're, you're somebody who works at United Launch Alliance Indicator, right? Yes, I am. What do you do at work? I'm a aerospace technician. I'm, right now, I'm currently working on the uh, new development uh, Vulcan for ULA. So. Um, building the avionics and propulsion systems. Awesome. Very cool. A lot a uh, lot smarter than me, I can tell you that. Uh so uh so walk us through preparing for negotiations, you know, you're elected, what happens next? What does that look like? Well, we're elected, um we're sent to Florida for training for a week to prepare with the other sites, other members of uh, uh, the negotiating committee, which for you, for the local lodge I, with the IAM, we have the launch sites in California and launch site in Florida. And us here in Decatur, all three of us will be together negotiating our contract here in about 30 days. What do you learn at the, at the training? Actually, they put us through some pre-negotiating test test runs. We actually have someone come in and pretend to be the company, and we're working through our processes, how we get proposals, how we communicate doing doing all that. We're learning about the economic side of it, uh, the writing language side of it. All that, they put us through that training in that one week, but that's what we did in Florida this this past September. That is, I have always thought that is one of the coolest things about uh, about union membership is being able to actually write the language that you're going to be working under. Um, especially since you know so many people feel like you know contract language is the domain of lawyers, and that you know normal working folk, you know. We're just not smart enough to understand that kind of stuff. Can you speak to the the actual drafting of of the contract language, like as as a working person? You know what? Uh, like, I'm. It's not really that. I mean, you know, there are things that you need to learn, but it's something that everybody could do, right? Um, for our contracts. It is better if we're the, the actual team members. I was a, a former shop steward. It is a lot better if the if the team members can understand the language. Now, if you had a lawyer writing this language, if you ever tried to read a mortgage contract or something like that, it's a lot of crazy stuff in there that doesn't need to be in there. A lot of stuff mm-hmm. we don't understand. But if we are part of that process, writing the language, it would help our members understand it and therefore when they have issues we can talk our way through it instead of like i said trying to muddle through lawyer speak and uh it's not easy like i said we went through the training in september we're striking proposals right now for our negotiations coming up in 30 days and you you know it's it's easy to think but we'll just write this in no every word every detail Mm -hmm. you have to kind of be calculated and 
do I think any one of our members could do it? Absolutely, with the proper training. But that, that's one of the reasons we don't have lawyers all over the place sitting with us, you know, wordsmithing every, every letter that comes across the table. I mean, for us, it's got to be where our members understand this contract. Right. How do you put together your list of priorities? You know, you, you you know, everybody, every workplace is going to be a little bit different. There are going to be some people who some some workplaces, maybe they feel good with the pay and they want more time off. Maybe some places uh, they're really upset about the pay. And so they want, you know, the raise is their top priority. How do you decide what to go hardest for at the bargaining table? Well, this is my first time being on the negotiating committee and how we decided to make those decisions were through employee surveys. And we actually did two, and we reviewed all the surveys, and we used whatever the highest percentage of the uh, actions that our members wanted. That's how we rate, ranked them. And, of course, everything that we found through the surveys, we really don't believe we'd be able to discuss during negotiations. We're only going to be gone two weeks. So we got to prioritize, you know, and, and probably we got 10 proposals top proposals that we have to do that were ranked the highest through the surveys. And that's how we accomplished it. Right. Right. Yeah. So, uh, you know, like we said, the members, uh, the members have a say in that. So that's, you know, absolutely. Uh, strike preparations go right along with bargaining preparations. Uh, you know, obviously strikes are a last resort, but can you speak to why it's important to be prepared to strike? Even if, you know, Y'all, y'all would hope it's not necessary. You know, it would be great if you go to the company with the things that their workers need and the company's like, okay, yeah, this sounds reasonable. Because I know y'all aren't going to the table saying we want, you know, $1,000 an hour, right? Y'all are coming up with things that are reasonable, that you know that the company could provide, uh, and that would be good, good for the workers. And so in an ideal world, the company would say, Okay, yeah, these are these are reasonable proposals. Let's go ahead and go with that. But we know that we do not live in an ideal world, and so <laughs> sometimes sometimes you can come to an impasse. So why is it important to prepare for a strike, even if you hope you don't have to? Well, you don't want to. Uh, our our vote is on a Sunday, and strike starts that midnight, that Monday morning. You don't want to be getting signs, getting bases of operations, getting a strike committee, uh, a PR committee. Uh, you don't want to be preparing for those things the week before. We as a negotiating committee, we are on those things right now. Uh, strike committee, line captains, base of operations, all those things have to be being put in place now. Because, like I said, if you wait to the week of, it's too late. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's one, the unorganization of it is discouraging to your people, for one, and not being prepared. And that um, you can't have it because it's a difficult time because we went on strike four years ago and we were prepared. Uh, but once again, the mindset changes for everybody in the body. Once you go on strike and if, if the members see that the leadership isn't prepared, it's disheartening and it, and it makes it difficult for them to follow you. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I 
it would be difficult for me to follow an unorganized leadership into a strike, knowing that you know I'm going to be forfeiting a lot of my pay. Obviously, you get you know you get strike checks, but that's not going to be the same as as your check from work. And so you know you have to be, um, if not just for morale. You, you know, you have to be Absolutely. organized and, and you have to know what you're doing. Can you talk to us about what what do those things mean? Strike captain, base of operations. You know, we have a lot of people in the audience that are that um, that are union members, but we also have a lot of people in the audience that are not union members. What are the what do those things mean? OK, strike captain, strike committee. Like when we go on strike at midnight, who's going to be there? Who's assigning shifts? Who's going to be in charge of the the uh, people at the line and the way we did it last time, we were four hour shifts. And of course, some people don't participate. And, you know, some do, and you still got to man the lines 24 hours, you know, every day. So you got to have somebody in charge to make sure that stays organized as well. And right. having a base of operations, you know, we got to have somebody preparing food just in case someone is in that has a need for it. Somebody has to be in charge of those community services. Um, once again, lunch and food being prepared for the people out on the line. That's another assignment assigned to, to someone else. Um, like I said, it, it's, it's several, you know, the election committee, strike committee, the picket line committee. It's several different committees, and some of them, and for our group, uh, are being combined because it'd be easier to work at work it that way. Um, but it, it, as far as that, the strike and the the picket committee, all this being handled right now, and we're preparing for it. Right, right. How does your union decide to go on strike? Let's say that you know you get to the table, and the company says, you know. No, we're not interested in, in giving you these, uh, you know, these reasonable requests that you're making. Um, how, how do you actually mechanically um, make the decision as a union to go on strike? Well, the, what we do, uh, like I said, we're, April 8th, we're going to negotiations. We'll be back April 25th and that following Sunday. We as a negotiating committee will have our whole body together. We'll read over the contract, especially the changes from the previous contract. And we as a negotiating committee will give our recommendation. And after that point, all three sites, all three sites will be doing this at the same time. And after that point, we as a group will vote number one, uh, yes or no on the contract. And then there's another vote to strike or no strike. I know it's kind of confusing having both of those votes, but that's the way we do. Mm-hmm. Right. Part of our right. bylaws. Yeah. So and, uh, here again, it's not some big scary union boss from across the country coming and telling your workers, your members to strike or not. It's y'all making that decision, right? No, no, sir. Our negotiating committee has five members. We, uh, when we leave negotiations, we will have a recommendation when we leave Florida and whether to, to vote this contract in or to vote it down. And all five of us will have the same message 
and all five of us will be speaking. The aerospace coordinator, he will be there, but we will be speaking to the child members. And then they'll be making the decision whether they want to accept the contractor uh, or not and whether to go on strike or not. Absolutely. Adam, did you have any questions for him about uh, their preparations for negotiations? No, I just wanted to chime in to, you know, thank you for joining. And I also wanted to just share with the audience, like, if you had any questions about how a union can operate democratically, how working class folks can get together as a group and do amazing things, just listen to what Chris told us tonight. Uh, I, I think that's a powerful testimony on how workers can come together and can do it democratically to to improve their lives and, and the lives of their families and their community. So I, I'm just wishing you and all your brothers and sisters a very, very successful contract negotiation. Uh, and we hope that we can have some of y'all come on very soon to share good news about yeah. your contract. That's what I hope. Thank you. <laughs> Uh, so we're talking right now to Chris Mullins. He's a bargaining committee member of the Machinist Local Lodge 44 in Decatur, uh, representing workers at the United Launch Alliance about their preparations for contract negotiations. And now, Chris, uh, let's turn to uh, to more general things about union negotiations. I mentioned this to you, and you said that you're good with it. Um, we have a clip that Hershey's is showing to their employees in Virginia who are voting on whether or not to unionize here in the next month. And uh, this is a video that is that talks about uh, union negotiations. And um, and so we're it, it's it's six minutes. So we're going to watch and react with you um, before we start, though, did did were you able to take a look at it uh, before the show? And, and did, did you have any thoughts about it? Yes, sir. Uh, I've seen something similar to that. When I worked for a company called Sunoco Products, we were trying to organize, and they played us a video of something similar, and it's disgusting, and everything in it is a lie. Uh, I, I don't know. Um, it should be against the law for a company to play that to employees about unions because it is not correct. Amen. Yep. Amen. Well, I think that's a that's a good uh, that's a good intro to it. So, <laughs> Adam, let's go ahead and uh, let's go ahead and watch the clip. All right. Jamie's dad asks her where she wants to go for her birthday dinner. She suggests the pricey seafood restaurant with the all-you-can-eat platter. Dad isn't too concerned about the price, but he's allergic to shellfish. He suggests the nice steakhouse that has a few seafood options, but Mom isn't a big fan of either choice. She reminds everyone that Jamie's new braces have tightened up the family budget. They compromise and go to the Chinese buffet. Nobody is very happy with how things turned out. Welcome to the process of negotiation. Collective bargaining, the technical name for negotiating a union contract, brings the interests of three parties to the negotiating table. Let's union, stop that right there the really quick. And the employees. Just like Jamie's birthday dinner negotiation. Each of these th- So and and if and if you could re- rewind it uh sure. before uh, when when we start back. The first thing that they do there is they show, you know, that they talk about that 
in negotiations there are going to be compromise. And this this is presented as if it's like an argument against negotiations. Like, like what is the what is the alternative to nego- negotiating your contract as a worker? It's being told what it's going to be and getting less as a worker, right? I mean, Absolutely. that's the, just just the idea that okay, you're not going to get everything you want. Well, not getting everything you want is better than getting nothing that you want. I mean, that's just it's absurd. It's also like as if you've never had to compromise as an individual worker without a union. <laughs> I mean, every job I've ever had, I had a hell of a lot of compromises on my part. Yeah. Uh, way more than the boss made. So uh, I feel like I'm not unique in that. It, it, yeah, it's it's weird to see negotiation being a scary or, or damning kind of process <laughs> when – there is no alternative there. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the alternative is getting... No- I mean, the alternative is getting nothing. If you are not negotiating collectively, then you are getting what the boss gives you. Well, now, hold on, Jacob. You could kiss a lot of rear, <laughs> and maybe you get in good with your supervisor, and maybe. you can get something that everybody else doesn't get. That's uh, true. That's left unsaid. Yeah, but if you're a union, everybody gets their fair share, should should be getting a fair share. Right. And I, I, I've been in that room where I get called, you know, a non-union company, we get called in a big room. They tell us what your your benefits are, what your raise is, and it's exactly what they think it should be. Mm-hmm. And you don't have a say. And now I have a say. And there's right. a difference. Right. And we're not yeah. trying yeah. to strip the company of everything that they earn, we're not looking for that. We've never looked for like that. We just want our fair share. Right. And so you're telling me, Chris, that it's better to get some of what you want than nothing and be dictated totally everything about your workplace? Well, it's better to have a say. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I would say so. Let's, uh, let's, Let's go ahead and keep playing the clip. Negotiating table. The union, the company, and the employees. Oh, rewind it a little bit there because we rewind it a little bit more because we missed a bit about that. The um, the three lists. I want to. I want to hear that. I want to hear that again. Bargaining, the technical name for negotiating a union contract, brings the interests of three parties to the negotiating table: the union, the company, and the employees. Just like Jamie's birthday dinner negotiation, each of these three parties comes with a list of things they hope to get from the process. Okay, let's stop right there. So, Chris, you just walked us through how you create, as the negotiating committee, how you create your list. But these, this video is trying to make it seem like the union is a set, there, there's an implicit third partying of the union here. But the union is just the workers. Absolutely. That they're trying to divide the members. Uh, well, they tried to, the prospective members, they're trying to divide them already. And mm-hmm. in our group, I can't, this is the only union I've ever been in. The employees and the union are one and the same. We don't have, I mean, I'll be honest with you, our business rep, he's rarely in town. We deal with the company on grievances. We write our own grievances. 
And yes, if it gets to a certain level, it does have to go to the business rep and so on and so forth. If it goes to arbitration, of course, we have to deal with the business rep. But it's, it's us, the technicians, the elected stewards handling these issues. And even in negotiations, it's us. It's us five launch site technicians. We're the one writing proposals. We're the one communicating with the members. And that, those surveys, that communication, that is what we're taking into negotiation. And yeah. that, that video, like I said, it should be against the law for them to play videos like this to prospective uh, uh, bargaining unit members. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's just it, it's totally disgusting. Uh, let's let's keep playing it. Collective <laughs> bargaining is the story of these three lists. The best way to understand collective bargaining is to consider where these three lists come from and to look at what happens to the items on those lists during negotiations. One is the employee's wish list. These are the things they told the union organizer they want to be different about their jobs. This list might include things like more pay and better benefits, work schedules, and even things like job security and workload. To get workers excited about all the possibilities with collective bargaining, the organizers ask workers to make the list of the things they want. This is a sales tactic intended to make workers feel like they will be in control and to believe they will get everything on their wish list. Okay, let's... Yeah. I, I'm anticipating eagerly uh, <laughs> how the employer handles this. <laughs> right. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I'm just curious how the employer gets the input of the employees and their wish list. And I mean, I, surely it wouldn't be just a sales tactic. Yeah. Uh, well, and, and I mean, no union member or union organizer or anybody in any union is going to tell you that unionizing is going to get you every single thing that you want for. Like, I'm not going to go and tell right. somebody that is looking to unionize, like, in, what anything that you want, you can get it and you can get it on your first contract. Like, that's just not that's not how it works. And nobody is saying that's how it works. But you can get some of it. List- Every employer, every employee in every job has that list. And it's right. just not yeah. realistic to go after stuff like that. So uh, <laughs> as being on the negotiating committee, I've had people come to me and, you know, say, hey, get us more vacation time. Get, get you know, get us, you know, younger people come. Hey, get us topped out fast. Of course, you try to work those things into the contract, but there are other language issues that has to be worked in as well. And as a negotiating committee, we, like I said, we prioritizing and we communicate that priority with the people. It's not just us mm-hmm. five guys on the committee saying we're going to do this and do that without communicating. No, right. we have a plan. We communicate that plan with the body, and that's how we move forward in negotiation. Right. And then, I mean, even as a last resort, you know, if if for some reason the workers who elected you and the workers who participated in the survey um, and, you know, the the workers who helped you prioritize, if, if for some reason you they get the contract back and they don't agree with the prioritization, they can always vote it down and tell you to go back Absolutely. and re- and redo it. Absolutely. And, and that's 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 our thing. If. If you do not like, at the end of the day, when you go vote, and I know 
whatever the negotiating committee decide, people still have that choice when they go vote, just like any election. Mm-hmm. If you don't like it, vote no. I've done it. I've yep. voted on contracts after being told, hey, you should vote for this because it was something in there that I did not like. I mean, as far as them trying to take seniority rights away, they do little mm-hmm. things to do that. Them uh, making us pay more for health insurance. They do little things, you know, that people don't realize they're doing it by increasing, giving you a raise here, but then increasing medical costs here. Well, that's a pay cut. And right. you got to take a look at this. Other things in there besides that little punch list, uh, this company put up there for you to, for, for us to look at is just a lot more. Right. I mean, even if the folks, even if the, fo- if the folks get the contract back and they disagree with you, you know, you ain't got a gun pointed to their head. <laughs> they can, they can vote the opposite way that you recommend. And that's, that's fine. Absolutely. That's nobody's going to come after them. Nobody's going to tell them they can't be a member of the union. And if they, uh, you know, if they have enough of a campaign around it, they can vote. They'll, uh, the membership can vote the contract down and you can go back to the table. Absolutely. Absolutely. So let's go ahead. And if they're still salty about it, you know what? They can vote for new people uh, to run for office. Uh, They can vote for new people to be on the committee. They can do it. Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) They can run themselves. I I mean, (laughs) it'd be easier to win one of those elections than uh, uh, win a political election. That's for sure. Yeah. I mean, and I think uh, all three of us have had conversations with members where, you know, the members with the loudest complaints and gripes, Mm. it's like, hey, you're going to be on the committee now. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> clearly, you're very passionate. You've got you've got yeah. the energy here. Uh, you care about this, so yeah. appreciate your complaints. Now you get to be on the committee and, and address it. Yep. Let's and go you ahead. Never and have keep to pl- worry about it. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Let's keep the going. The company's with list will focus on retaining flexibility and controlling costs. Okay, hold on. The company's that- list is going to focus on. What, retaining flexibility and lowering costs. Huh. Wonder, hmm. I wonder, wonder what that means. That comes. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder what the English translation of that is. The English translation of that is less protections on the job for workers and uh, lower wages that and higher health care costs for the workers. That's the that's the English translation for that non for that new speak there. <laughs> Even if right, there are no ahead. changes to pay and benefits, a union will increase the costs of running its business. These new costs include things like legal expenses, lost management time for bargaining, contract administration, handling grievances, and time spent on union business. Okay, let's stop will- right there just really quick. They mentioned that uh, a loss of business is going to be um, handling grievance, even if there's no pay or, or benefit increases. You only get a grievance if you violate the contract. I mean, you're not, <laughs> you know, just follow the contract and you're not going to have any problems with right. your employees. And if you're, if it's a frivolous grievance that an employee has filed, well, guess what? It's not going to take long to win. It will not take long. You probably don't even have to pay your lawyers to handle it. Yeah. Uh, that is such BS. Uh, I, I mean, in every one of those issues involves workers being able to address issues on the job site. So the alternative, again, is to have no uh, Mm -hmm. method of addressing any issues. If you're being harassed on the job, uh, if you're being cheated out of overtime pay, if you've been denied vacation time, oops, deal with it. Wouldn't want to spend company time on a grievance. Uh, That's just so. Follow the contract, you won't have to worry about it. 
Absolutely. Yep. Absolutely. Exactly. Exactly. Have a list of proposals to make sure that it continues to manage the business, to maintain quality, take care of customers, and respond to changing business conditions so it can remain competitive and provide good jobs. Most companies insist on a management rights clause to confirm the union will not contest the company's right to make all decisions related to operations of the business, things like staffing, products, work processes, and others. I'm just going to stop it here to say, uh, and I'm not trying to put any union down by any means, but uh, I personally don't think we even should give them those rights. <laughs> uh, you know, if, it, if the workers are the yeah. ones creating the value of the company, if it is their labor that creates the profits of the company, mm-hmm. then I don't think it's unreasonable that they should also have some say, say so in, in the operations. Right. And now I'm not trying to say that, you know, our, our machinist brothers and sisters are trying to tell them how to build the rockets necessarily or how many rockets. Uh, I get that. But the fact that that's even taken as a given in our country is mm-hmm. pretty extreme, really. If you start yeah. to think about it, why shouldn't we have some say so in operations and staffing? Right. Who else knows when you're short staffed, but the people on the line dealing with it, having to pick up the slack? Yeah. But uh, even uh, even <laughs> given that, though, even given that, again, what is the alternative? The alternative to a management rights clause where the employer has the uh, total say over what to produce and and when to produce and how much and and all the and, and hiring and these sorts of things is uh, that they get total say over everything. Right. Yeah. The management <laughs> rights are, are management unending. rights are everything. Yeah. Yeah. So, and Chris, you feel free to feel free to tell them to stop uh, as well if there's something that you want to uh, if there's something a point that you want to make. <laughs> no, you you guys are hundred percent right. Uh, they don't know staffing needs. Mm-hmm. They mismanage so much. They would be better to let the technician. I'm just speaking for ULA. We know the production aspect, not an right. HR leader that right. sits in the office, mm-hmm. doesn't want to communicate with nobody out on the floor. But, you know, she wants to make he or she wants to make decisions from an office and makes things worse. And that's how grievances get written. Yep. Right. And so. Yeah, management rights sucks. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. Yeah, and I mean, I think you know, you you said that you're speaking for ULA. I think that you could pretty, I think you could pretty confident confidently say you speak for any workplace because yeah. every workplace that I've ever worked at, uh, the people who do the work know better how much people need to be there to get the work done and to get the work done in a timely and uh, quality manner. You know, I think that that's a pretty ubiquitous complaint. I mean, that's the a huge reason that we're seeing so many people in healthcare unionized right now is because their boss either has no idea how many nurses you need to actually staff a hospital and staff it well, or they don't care. They don't care at all, and they just want profits. And I'm I'm inclined towards the latter, but either way, there's a huge staffing problem in healthcare right now, and that's a big reason that you know. So yeah, management rights suck. The third list is the unions. Before we get to this list, it is important to remember how a union changes the relationship between the workers and their company. If the union is voted in, the union becomes the exclusive representative of the employees to the company. 
the union will try to negotiate a contract with the company. Although workers may be asked to approve or reject a contract, the contract is between the union and the company, not between the company and the employees. Hmm. The union's top priority you have any, uh, is not important uh, to understand. Well, who the hell is the contract the union- for? Then? Yeah. Do you you uh, any comments on any comments on that, Chris? <laughs> it, it, like I said, total ridiculous. I mean, the employees and union—they're the same thing. Mm-hmm. It is in Decatur, and right. it is yeah. in Vandenberg, and it is in you know the Cape. I mean, and I mean, what does it even what does it even mean if the the you know the contract is between the union and the employer? Oh, but workers have total say to vote to vote the contract down. I mean, what is it? What what kind of nonsense is that? Eve, it just just doesn't follow. Right. Um, I I think I think it's one of those where they just try to barrage you. I mean, at the same stuff that hope some of it sticks in your brain along the same lines. We could say that uh, the corporation, you know, we can use ULA as an example. Oh, well, you know, ULA as a corporation is getting between my me and my relationship with Tony Bruce or whatever the hell his name is, the CEO of ULA. ULA is, is because ULA is this corporate entity in the same way that the union is the organized group of workers, you know. We wouldn't say that ULA is getting between me and my relationship with the boss. That's nonsense. ULA is the boss. Yeah. I tell you what, as a school teacher, I had assistant principals getting in the way of me talking to my principal, who got in the way of me talking to HR, <laughs> who got in the way of me talking to deputy superintendents, who got in the way of me talking to the superintendent. Oh, and, oh by the way, we couldn't talk to the school board members who put the superintendent in there. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, don't give me this crap about the union coming in between anybody. And yeah. you know what? And like you say, Chris, you can testify to how it is in Decatur. If it's not mm-hmm. that way in your union, in your your environment, mm-hmm. then that's an issue for you to organize around and to make your union better and make it as democratic as it needs to be for you and your brothers and sisters. It's not right. it's not a, a reason to just throw out your union or unionization mm-hmm. overall uh, because even if even in the most undemocratic unions you still elect your local president right it's still more democratic than a yeah, non-union right. workplace even it even a works. yeah even a mm-hmm. mediocre or a bad union is right. generally going to be better than none at all you you always elect your local officers and you never elect your boss and for me i mean right. that's the, that's the to- that's the end of the discussion is yeah. that you know you have control, even if maybe it's not optimal, even if maybe it's not as much as you would want. You know, there obviously because unions are human institutions, humans are flawed. There's going to be flawed iterations, and 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 there's going to be flaws in every union, and and so you can always make it better. But the fundamental thing is, you elect your local officers, you get to approve or not approve your contract, and you don't get to elect your boss. You don't get to, and in a non-union workplace, you don't get to have any say in your working conditions. And so, you know, that's that's it as far as I'm concerned. But let's keep going with the clip. It is a business. It must protect its own interests. The union's interests have nothing to do with what workers want. To make money, the union collects money from its members. To make sure it gets paid, the union will propose a dues checkoff clause. This clause means union dues or fees are deducted from workers' paychecks, just like taxes. The union will also ask for...
Oh, and charitable contributions and, and any number of other things that you can do at just about any damn workplace. Mm-hmm. You can put money in a college savings account out of your paycheck. You can put money to United Way out of your paycheck. It, any place I'm familiar with that did offer payroll deduction for union dues, that's the way it was. So, you know, yeah. it's it's not some, you know, far-fetched idea. Uh, or some kind of special little privilege. And as if it's even like a difficult thing to implement. Right. Like it's not. It's, not. <laughs> it's not. As someone who was kind of involved Listen, in that I, for school districts. The way I explain mm-hmm. it to, to people, if the dues come up, we got organizing. We got education that's available to all our members. We do community outreach. Our dues pay for those things. Our dues pay for getting prepared for strikes. Mm-hmm. Our dues pay for getting training for negotiations. Those things are important. Without yeah. those things, we would not be able to do nothing that we're going to do here in 30 days. And that is sit down and negotiate a good contract a, between the company and our brothers and sisters to continue to be a rockets. If we didn't have those dues, you would not be able to do this. Mm-hmm. Simple as that. That's right. For super seniority. So its leaders are the last people to get laid off, regardless of their skill or time employed. The union will also ask. Okay, let's stop given- on the super seniority. Super seniority, and I was talking to David about this. Um, for one, again... Its leaders, the union's leaders, are elected. Okay, so if you don't want somebody having super seniority, you can give it. You you can vote to give it to somebody else. But super seniority seems to me, and and David even even disagreed with me a little bit because he he doesn't. David is the local president. He doesn't have super seniority, and I think that it would not be unreasonable. For the local president and for the stewards to have super seniority, because I could imagine a scenario where a a boss is really going after the union's leadership. But some, yes. but 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 look, I've had that happen to me right. personally as a member of a bargaining team and executive board. Mm-hmm. Um, it absolutely can result in retaliation, and it seems like common sense that if you're in a position. That can be adversarial with the company. It shouldn't have to be, but it can be. Mm-hmm. Or you're in a position where you're you're advocating, you're fighting for, for your coworkers. You're right. You should have maybe some extra protection. But right. here's the kicker. Here's the kicker. I mentioned that David disagreed with me a little bit on this, and uh, they don't have super seniority. The machinists don't have. They don't bargain for super seniority for anybody except. The negotiating team, because the negotiating team is the people that uh, that interpret the contract, and so they need those folks around, and so they don't have super seniority for stewards or, or, or the local president. I mean, can you speak a little bit to that, Chris? Stewards. I think we do have we do have super seniority for stewards. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. We do, uh, but let let me throw this out here. I, I'm on a negotiating committee. I've been a steward. If that's what you're doing this job for, you don't need to do this job because it is a lot of work. Mm-hmm. And I'll be honest with you, if there was a layoff and it got to me on the seniority list, I don't think I could live with myself that I would stay and let somebody with higher seniority be laid off 
and I stay. I would not be able to do that. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of my brothers and sisters that's on these committees would be feel the same way, even right. though it would hurt. You know, like I said, Harvest is plenty of laborers. A few we don't have many people working within the union. We need to have everybody in there. Somebody else will step up. But to me, getting laid off out of seniority, that that's not what we're about. Mm-hmm. That I struggle with that. Right, right. But here again, you know, because your priorities are are uh, uh, given by, you know, that's not something that the union has to bargain for. If if the members if the members are really against having super seniority, guess what? They can vote for a contract right. that doesn't have that. They can vote for a negotiating team Absolutely. that knows that that's not a priority of the membership, and and that's again because they want to they they the the, the bosses want to make you believe that the union is a third party that the union is different from the workers, and, that and that's they have not this, true. Like, set formula that, right. that they apply to every kind of industry, every kind of workplace, and that's just so not true. Yeah, I mean, this video is is being shown to Hershey's workers, and it's not even. Like, it's not even a special video for Hershey's workers. It's literally a Labor Relations Institute stock video that's not, you know, they, you, you, you'll notice that they don't mention Hershey and they don't mention BCTGM because it's a generic union video. They don't even have, they, they didn't even pay for the premium package to get their own video made. I mean, this is just like <laughs> bottom of the barrel stock stuff here. Mm-hmm. Like I said, I saw this probably about 25 years ago. Uh, or some, well, Something they actually like had real yeah. people. It wasn't animated. Yeah, and, and we've we've uh, shown some clips. Was it from Lowe's or Home Depot one uh, that was similar to this? And, you know, I, I'm glad you mentioned, though, that you saw it that long ago because I think if you look at some of the media coverage of – of the more recent union fights and especially some of the egregious stuff that Amazon is doing, you would kind of walk away thinking, Oh man, where did this come from? Mm -hmm. But as long as there have been unions, there has been union busting by the company. And, you know, these kinds of videos are not brand new. These did not just come out in the last year or two. They've been doing this stuff. Yeah. uh, As long as people have been trying to organize. And they've been doing a lot worse, too, than showing you videos. Right, frankly. right, right. Yeah, absolutely. Time off work for union business. In states without a right-to-work law, the union will demand that it can require the company to fire any worker who fails to pay dues or a similar fee. Now we get to the nitty-gritty. I'm sorry to, to pause it again, but I do want to make sure that folks understand, especially those of you who maybe don't belong to a union, uh, what we're what they're talking about here is an agency fee, and agency fee is not a dues payment. You are basically reimbursing the cost to the union that is provided uh, in terms of the services you get. Right. In other words, you're not you don't have to belong to the union, but you still work under the contract that they spent their money and resources to negotiate mm-hmm. for you and your uh, other employees, uh, and you know. They may also have to provide some degree of representation for you if you are being fired, if you are being suspended, uh, whether you're a member or not, depending right. on, you know, of course, all this stuff varies by workplace and industry and union. But, uh, you know, of course, agency fees have already been banned for the public sector mm-hmm. uh, with the Janus Supreme Court. So uh, teachers and firefighters, other public sector employees, 
it doesn't even apply to them anymore. But frankly, it was never as bad of a thing as they've made it out to be. Right. Because if you're paying, I mean, if the union is paying, spending their dues dollars to negotiate a contract and to provide representation to employees, and you get to benefit from that without mm-hmm. even being a member, you trying to take a free ride here, um, that's not a, an unreasonable ask that you right. have to pay a, a, a smaller fee than the dues amount to, to try to reimburse for the cost. And you'll notice that they said the union will ask that. That doesn't mean, one, that doesn't mean the employer has to, you know, the state isn't coming in here and saying that, you know, oh, you have to, the boss has to agree to an agency fee clause. And because the union is the workers, if the workers at a certain workplace feel really strongly that they don't want to require people to pay an agency fee, they don't have to. And that's democratic. It's like, you know, if the workers don't want to do that, then they don't have to. And if you, uh, you know, if you don't like paying an agency fee, there's a lot of non-union workplaces that you can go and work at. Yeah. You try to encourage them to go. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And and the thing is, it's just like the seniority and, and the other issues there. It all depends on what the workers themselves want when it's in a union environment. Workers actually have input, and yeah. if the input's inadequate, they have the opportunity to organize to make that input uh, adequate. And I think that is such a key difference here because uh, non-union workplaces, nobody's asking for your opinion about seniority, mm-hmm. about who gets laid off when. Uh, nobody's asking your opinion about any of this. Um, yeah. You know, one of the things we've heard a lot about uh, in terms of anti-union arguments, and I ran into someone the other day uh, at work. They said, yeah, you know, unions are cool. I like unions. They've done, done a lot of good things. But the bad thing is, you know, everybody has to be equal and, you know, hard workers get paid the same as lazy workers. And, okay, again, you as the workers in a union have the opportunity to organize around whatever your priorities may be. And mm-hmm. if you, you know, if you're in a situation where maybe there's a reason for you to have some kind of performance metrics or some kind of uh, incentives, whatever whatever is right for you and your colleagues. Right. That's something you can bargain that's for. That's what you can work for. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's just a mistake to generalize like that and assume, well, that's just the way it is with a union. Well, no, it's not. It's the way it is with um, non-union workplaces that you're not going to get any damn opinion at all. Well, you can have opinions. Excuse me. You can have an opinion. doesn't it mean doesn't it's going to count for anything. Yeah. Negotiation process. Yeah, go ahead, Chris. I'm sorry. The leadership and the accountability part of it keeps getting glossed over too. Right. Passed over as stewards and leaders. We we can hold each other accountable Hmm. because we're in this selected group. Right. And we do have scabs, you know, people that ain't paying dues that have the audacity and have no issue when something happens and they need a steward. Have no issue oh, yeah. coming to the leadership to come help them, mm-hmm. you know, and it ain't right. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I don't want to get on that soapbox. No, right I, but no, I'm glad you mentioned the <laughs> yeah. accountability part because, again, even even in a less than ideal union situation, there is a level of accountability there that you do not get for your management. And you don't even get for your government, frankly. Right. I mean, 
if you're a member of a local, you have more opportunity to vote out, you know, bad or mediocre leaders in your union than you'll ever have to vote out crappy school board members or city mm-hmm. council members. Uh, your vote's going to your vote's going to carry more, and you're going to have more of an opportunity to make a difference as opposed to whichever candidate gets the most donations. Yeah. Where these three lists get hashed out, the company and the union sit down at the bargaining table each with its list of proposals. As the two parties negotiate, the union will fight first and hardest for the items it must have to be successful as a union. Dues checkoff, union security if legal, super seniority, etc. The company will fight first and hardest for what it requires to be successful as a business, such as the flexibility to run the business efficiently and control costs, and a management rights clause to minimize union interference. What about the list of things the employees wanted? the things the union organizers promised they would deliver. The union will try to get some of these items too, but when push comes to shove, union negotiators have the exclusive authority to give these things up to get what the union needs. The most important thing to remember is that there are no guarantees in collective bargaining. There is no guarantee the parties will ever reach a contract. Employees could get more, they could get less, or they could end up with the same deal they had before the union got in and have a new obligation to pay money to the union. And what about the things unions like to talk about when they need workers' support? I'm just going to stop it there to say if the workers end up with less, okay, obviously that's a problem for the union, but also the employer clearly mm-hmm. asked for that, right? Well, I mean, it's like they, <laughs> they, they kind of pretend they're not even part of this whole process. If wages go down in your next contract well i mean the union, whose fault is that right the, yeah. you, that wasn't the union's idea right i mean clearly the company pushed for that uh so it's a really interesting way of like deflecting blame and you know they were mentioning they talked about how oh the union is going to fight first and hardest for dues checkoff and you know maybe higher wages get left off as if like just because it you know that it takes two bullet points to say, do you know, one, dues check off, two, higher wages. As if because it takes up the same amount of space on paper, that it requires the same, that it's even remotely equal. Like, dues check off is nothing. Like, that's, you know, a company will agree to that, and and, and it's not, there's no issue there. there. It doesn't cost them anything. It, it's just good um, administration. And if they're not, if they are giving you a hard time about that, then clearly they're just trying to, screw with the union and, and yeah. hurt their membership intentionally. I mean, right. yeah. I'll be honest with y'all. This would be my fourth contract and it's, it's not a it's not a big an issue. Hour dues are calculated, two hours of pay, you know, on average. It's not a big issue. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Things like dignity and respect. <laughs> Neither party is even required to discuss these and you won't find either in union contracts. Unions want you to believe. Okay, that hold on. Work- so you're not going to find. It is probably true that you're not going to find quote dignity and respect in a union contract. But like, what that wouldn't even mean anything. Like dignity and respect, Article Four, Section Five. Like right, that's not. Di- really- that, that's not <laughs> what we mean when we say we should have dignity and respect on the job. Is that we should have uh, policies that 
in that make the employers that make the bosses that make the managers treat us with dignity and respect like job security like a grievance procedure when a boss harasses us like you know uh, appropriate time off when we need time off like for sick leave and things like that that's what dignity and respect means it doesn't mean that i want the boss to sign on the dotted line like jacob has dignity like screw that i don't care i don't you know that doesn't matter. I want the the things that dignity means. And notice they didn't. Again, they're they're kind of putting themselves uh, separate from this process. They're the employer. Should they wish to treat their employees with dignity and respect, by all means, they have every right to do so. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, putting putting abstract values in contract language is not the same as actually doing it. Right. Workers have power that if the company doesn't agree to the union's demands, the union can call a strike. And that can happen. But if you strike for economic reasons, which is what collective bargaining is all about, you can be permanently replaced. Unions often threaten companies with strikes during negotiations. But in many cases, unions will also use the threat of a strike against its members to pressure them to accept a contract the members don't want. But why would a union pressure its members to make a bad contract? The truth is, the union is the only party that must get a contract to get paid. The company is in business and has the opportunity to make a profit. The workers have jobs and receive paychecks. But without a contract, the union gets nothing. So let's stop the there. Question for workers. The, the, they're talking about strikes as it, again as if this big, scary union boss from halfway across the country is going to come and tell you uh, that you have to strike. Oh, there are going to be risks when you take a strike, and that's why it's important. And, and like, Chris, you know, I'm sure that when y'all have your strike meetings, there are discussions about the pros and cons, and people are weighing the the risks of going on strike, right? That's not a decision that, that your union or that any union would make lightly, Right. Our next union meeting, March 26, and that's a week before we leave to go negotiate. That's going to be a, a hopefully a wrap. If those when the survey discussions will come into place, the communications on where we are on our proposals, there'll be many discussions between now and that vote. So everybody can make a good decision. And once again, the negotiating committee, the five guys, we will have a recommendation. And, and, it's, and it's not, you know, it's not going to be easy. I, I, I don't take it lightly that if I got to come back and tell a group of people that I work with, friends of mine, we need to go on strike because I know how it affects their family. Mm-hmm. But it, it it's not our business rep or the president of the IAM coming down and say, hey, y'all don't need to go or y'all need to go on strike. It's going to be the employees. We're mm-hmm. the union. We make that call. Right. And why is a strike effective? A strike is effective because y'all are the people that actually do the work. And so that can push a company to uh, – to give you more of the things that you want. You know, you're, it's going to hurt a little bit in the short term. And, uh, 
But in a lot of cases, it can get you a really big benefit. And of course, because it's going to hurt in the short term, that's why you have those discussions. That's why you have those meetings. That's why there are going to be hard conversations about the pros and cons. And like, is this short term hurt? Is it worth what we think we can get? How much do we think that we can get from a strike? Those are all conversations that workers have amongst themselves before they make the decision to strike. And so, you know. Absolutely. What might the union give up in negotiations to make sure it gets paid? Collective bargaining is about three lists, two wish lists, and a union's absolutely must-have list. In the end, there are only three possible outcomes. You might get more, you might stay the same, or you might end up with less. And if the union gets what it wants, you will have to pay. Is that worth the roll of the dice? Don't gamble with your future, they say. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I would... It, it's very funny because this is something that they always say in every single anti... No matter what the subject is, almost, if you hear a boss talking to you about how unions are bad, they'll say, you might get more, you might get the same, you might get less. It would be... I would pay good money... If they showed me a single union contract that is worse than those employees had before they got it, because there is never a standard contract, because this this anti-union industry, it is it's a billion dollar industry. There are hundreds of these law firms. Each of these each of these fancy lawyers making thousands of dollars uh, per day. If there was a single union contract that they could point to where it was unambiguous that the workers got less than they had before they unionized, they would be trotting it out every single time. And they don't have it because it's not it doesn't exist. It's not real. It doesn't exist. And, I can and, see. Yeah, go ahead. Chris. We've took concessions. I'm sorry. We've took concessions on several contracts, but what we've gained we we gain, and, and if we don't look like we gain, we strike. Right. Bottom line, and that's even and and that's you know you're taking concessions from your last union contract. You're not taking Absolutely. concessions from before you unionized. It's always been better than before it was organized, or or you know that's taking concessions from one contract to another is a totally different thing. You know maybe. The, you know, or at the hands of bankruptcy court, or like, at the hands of bankruptcy you know, court, like our right? Brothers but, and sisters in Brookwood, where you know that played a role in in the contract and the problems they have with their contract. But that's uh, totally different than right. saying, "Oh, you unionized and then you got a worse contract." They don't yeah. have that contract uh, because it doesn't exist. No. Nope. So uh, one one time I heard a salary person. He was talking about healthcare insurance. And he said he made a statement. It was around contract time. He said that if we wasn't organized, our insurance would be cheaper than theirs. And I asked him how much he has cost right now. And what he had, which the, our salary people are not organized, was costing more than what I had. So I said, how does that make sense? And it, and it didn't make sense. We are in a better position because we are organized labor. Simple as that. Yeah. Chris, thank you very much for your time tonight. I really yeah, appreciate it. Do you have any? Uh, do you have any any closing thoughts as uh, before we let you go? 
No, I, I appreciate the time. Again, like I said, my name is Chris Mullins. Anybody can contact contact me, and if they got questions on this, I do the best I can. And I appreciate the time you guys gave me today. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I've enjoyed it. Enjoyed it. All right, yeah, we've been talking to Chris Mullins. Uh, we've been going through an anti-union video about collective bargaining with a member of a union bargaining committee. And, you, folks, you don't get more of a direct response than that. Uh, so we appreciate we appreciate his time, and, and we appreciate your time listening. Um, we're gonna take uh, we're gonna take a quick break, and then we're gonna come back with one more announcement uh, before we wrap up the show. You're listening to the Valley Labor Report. Energy Alabama supports consumers and is a leader in advocating for them. They have been able to successfully fight off utility rate increases in the state, reduce fees for electric vehicles, increase electric vehicle infrastructure spending, and they secured a $100 million refund by Alabama Power after the utility overcharged customers for fuel. To learn more about their work advocating for customers and to join the fight, go to energyalabama.org. There's a lot of talk about a shortage of workers, but that's not the case with IBW558. We have provided our customers over 3,000 workers and performed over 3 million man hours in a pandemic year. With 8,000 OJT hours, 900 classroom hours, OSHA 30, and a state license, our members receive the equivalent of a master's degree. That's what makes IBW558 the right choice for your electrical needs. Look us up at Facebook or at IBW558.org. The attorneys of Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs are proud to represent working people in Alabama and across the southeast. They have over 100 years of experience representing injured workers in workers' compensation, personal injury, and disability claims. Let their attorneys help you when you get injured on the job. You can find them at www.mtandj.com or 855-617-9333. Let Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs help you when you get injured on the job. Again, the website is www.mtandj.com or the phone number 855-617-9333. No representation is made that the quality of legal services is greater than the quality of legal services from other law firms. North Alabama DSA is looking for folks to work for a better North Alabama. They prioritize mutual aid, municipal activism, and union solidarity. Contact them on social media or DSA North Alabama at Gmail for more information. Support for this program is provided by the International Association for Machinists and Aerospace Workers, Local Lodge 44 in Decatur, Alabama. Learn more at IAMAW44.org. Hometown Action is a proud sponsor of the Valley Labor Report, and we're here to help keep you in the loop on the assault on your right to protest, picket, and peaceably assemble in Alabama. The anti-protest bill is back this year, and it's as bad as ever. There is huge interest in building worker power and increasing unionization in Alabama that has corporations scared. Don't let their influence on our state legislators become another tool to arrest striking workers and union supporters. This racist bill is especially problematic 
traffic for black organizers and unnecessarily gives law enforcement broad discretion to define even small peaceful gatherings as a riot. Tell your Alabama legislators to say no to House Bill 2. We've set up an easy way for you to do that. You can go to hmtn.link slash hb2 where you'll find more information and an email template you can use right from your smartphone that link is hmtn.link slash hb2 you'll also find more info on social media at hometown action we're the nurses firefighters and claims representatives that help keep our government services running we respond to natural disasters we care for our nation's veterans and we investigate discrimination in the workplace we are federal and dc government workers and we are proud to serve the american people working in more than 70 agencies across the government we know we can fulfill our mission because our union has our back learn more at afge .org. Paid for by the American Federation of Government Employees, AFL-CIO. Support for this program also comes from the Mid-South Council of Retail, Wholesale, and Department Store Union. Learn more at rwdsu.info. Come all you poor workers, good news to you, I'll tell how the good old union has come in here to dwell. Alabama's only... Union Talk Radio Show. You're listening to the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison, or as they are calling me in the YouTube comments section now, Dollar Tree Patrick Bateman. Uh, and my co-host is Adam Keller. If you want to weigh in on anything we've been talking about, feel free. You can give us a call, 844-899-TVLR. The phone number is 844-899-8857. This is a pre-tape, so you're not going to be able to join us live. But you can leave us a voicemail, and we will answer it on the next show. Just a reminder that you can always go back and listen to the full show and any individual clips, like our conversation going over an anti union Union collective bargaining info thing from an anti-union union busting firm on our YouTube channel, the Valley Labor Report. We've got all sorts. We've got 555 videos on our YouTube channel. All very good stuff. Lots of good interviews, lots of good educational segments, debunking anti-union propaganda. Lots of good stuff. Lots of good stuff. Uh, so we're um, – And I'm going to take this chance to plug some of the Amazon coverage from this time last year or so. Uh, you and David did a great job interviewing folks from the Amazon warehouse and folks involved in the Amazon campaign. So uh, as uh, workers there finish up this vote, check out check out some of those clips. Check yep. them out from a year ago. See how the whole thing started. Exactly, exactly. So um, we've not got a lot of time left here on the radio, so we're just going to plug one more thing, and then we're going to go ahead and get out of here, and that is uh, Lee Baines Third and the Glory Fires. Many people are saying they are the best band to ever come out of Alabama. Uh, Lee was instrumental in pulling together that fundraiser that we did last year for the striking miners. Uh, he put in so many hours of preparation, not to mention doing the show for free. You know, that's like how he makes his money, at least part of it. He, you know, he, he works in the construction industry um, outside of that. But, uh, you know, he's a hell of a guy. His music is great. And we could not have raised $75,000 for their strike fund last year without him. And he's got a new record 
that is coming out in August that you can finally pre-order. Pre-orders are up now. They announced it with a profile in The Rolling Stone. So y'all had better go and read that article in The Rolling Stone. Um, the, ti- the title of the article is uh, something like, Lee Baines would like it if you sang along with this one. Um, it's really great. I loved the article. It was really good insight into... Um, you know, into the making of this album and into how he makes his music um, and then go and pre-order his album. It's going to be great. Um, and while you wait for the full album to come out, you can listen to the single that he dropped, God's a Working Man. Now, uh, you know, I'm definitely a fan of their heavier and punky type stuff, but as you could tell from our selection of intro music, I also love a good sing-along song. I grew up... Um, in an evangelical church where we really prioritized singing of hymns and gospel music. And as, uh, you know, as I have, uh, as I grew out of my, you know, younger rebellious teen phase, I, I came back to my love of Southern gospel. And so I'm, I'm just as likely to listen to Southern gospel songs as I am anything else. Now I love it. Uh, and I love being able to sing along with it. And uh, they're saying that several of the songs on this record seek to ju- do just that. Um, and the process got started in Lee's mind about having songs that are easy to sing along to because a student asked him after a show if he ever wrote songs for, the pur- for that purpose, for the purpose of a crowd singing along to a song. Asking that because that's what so many people in the labor movement in the last century did. They've had, they'd have like, a whole union hall singing along with a song as an act of solidarity. There'd be singing on the picket lines. And we've actually seen, seen like a minor resurgence of this in some of the teacher strikes and things like this. Um, if so you've I'm, never sang solidarity forever with a large crowd of people, you uh, you're it. missing out. And yeah. no matter how terribly you might sing, uh, it is so much fun. It, it is a lot of fun. Uh, from the article, Lee says, it really stuck with me, the notion of a sing-along. I tend to associate that with commercialism, give them something they can spit back at you in a beer commercial. But the way he framed it is that it's also solidarity. And I thought that was really cool. So I'm incredibly excited. The album is called Old Time Folks. His record label is Don Giovanni Records. So go buy it. Enjoy the single. Read the profile in The Rolling Stone. And uh, we're going to get Lee on the show sometime to talk about it. But I wanted to make that announcement before we wrapped here on the radio. Um, as we're wrapping up, let's do a couple of plugs. You can, like I said, you can leave us a voicemail at 844-899-TVLR. That is 844-899-8857. We've got a new hat. We placed the order yesterday on Friday, but we ordered some extra so you can still get yours. And of course, you can uh, send us a monthly donation. You can navigate there from our website, tvlr.fm. Folks, that is it for us on the radio. If you find us online, you can stay tuned for overtime. We are answering your phone calls, uh, answering voicemails. We're talking about Starbucks workers hitting back and more, so you don't want to miss it. All power to the workers. 